Hey guys, with today's lesson, we are already past the halfway mark in our study on the Kingdom of God. This is week six, and there's only 11 weeks in the entire series, so we're moving very close to the end, and some of you are probably applauding, uh, but I, I'm having a blast teaching this lesson, and this one is going to be particularly insightful because now we get to start moving towards the practicality of it all. Over the last three weeks, we've spent a lot of time in the Old Testament looking at those promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then last week we looked at the covenant, the promise made to King David. And, and all of these point towards the Messiah, Mashiach, the, the King of Israel, the Anointed One. Well, now we want to begin to figure out, okay, so where do we go from here? What does this, this have to do with you and I living in 21st century America? How do we take the kingdom of God, the, the concept of the kingdom of God, and apply it to our lives? So to do so, we have to ask this question. What kind of kingdom did Jesus come to bring? That's essential for us to understand what it has to do with us as we live our lives right here, right now. And that begs another question. What were the Jews expecting when Jesus came? And we've touched on this over the last few weeks, but just to summarize their expectations, because they did have them, this is what they were expecting from the kingdom. It would be an earthly kingdom ruled over by a human king. And that's important for us to consider because a lot of our concepts about the kingdom come from our perspective on this side of the cross. Prior to Jesus' arrival, the first century Christians had a very specific view of the kingdom and the one who would set that kingdom up. So it would be an earthly kingdom right here on this earth, and it would be ruled by an earthly king. It would be a political kingdom. In other words, it would be a political kingdom that would be governed by such attributes as justice and righteousness. They got that from the Old Testament. We looked at those passages last week. So that's what they're expecting. They want a military kingdom ruled by a very powerful warrior king who has a strong army because they've been under Roman oppression for years now and they're looking for somebody to show up and right every wrong and fix every problem and by virtue of that they would end up being a very influential kingdom. They would influence the world around them by bringing peace and prosperity to that region of the world again. But the key is it would be a Jewish kingdom, kingdom, an exclusively Jewish kingdom. It would be a Jewish king coming from the line of David. He would rule in Jerusalem on the throne of David, and he would set up a Jewish kingdom that would rule and reign in that region of the world and put them back on the map politically and, and economically speaking. So this is what they were expecting when the Messiah showed up, when he came to bring his kingdom, and he would be a human king. He would be a man. So again, it's important for us to understand what was the Jewish concept of the Messiah, Mashiach. How did they expect this person to appear? What would he be when he did appear? Again, descendant of David. He would come down through the line of David. He would be a great political leader. He would be a great military leader. All of this is kind of baked into the cake in terms of their idea of who this man would be, and he would be a righteous judge. He would rule righteously and with justice over all the nations of the world. And again, he would be a man. He would not be a semi-god, demi-god. Uh, they had no really concept of him being the son of God. He would be anointed 
but he would be a human king who came from the line of David. So this is their concept of the Messiah. And you can see how those kinds of factors, along with the kind of kingdom he would bring, dramatically impacted their expectations. Well, when would he come? That was another thing that the Jews wrestled with. When's the Messiah going to come? Last week, I, I kind of beat home the point that they kept wondering when, when. Six centuries have gone by since the last king, Zedekiah, sat on the throne of David, and they have waited and waited and waited. So they keep asking, when is he going to show up? Well, one of the things they would say is he will come when he's most needed. He will come at just the right time when he's most needed, when the world is marked by sinfulness. That was one of the perspectives they had when everything was at its worst, he would show up. Now, if you're a Jew living in first century Israel, under the oppressive hand of the Romans, you would probably guess this is like one of the worst times we've ever been through. So maybe it's now. The second thing was that he would come when, he, when it's most deserved. This one's kind of interesting that the Messiah will show up when we most deserve it. In other words, when the world is marked by righteousness. Now, world to them was Israel. When the Israelites were living in righteousness, he would show up. So see the two extremes. Either when everything has gone south and it's, the world is marked by wickedness or when it's marked by righteousness. But these are the two extremes they had in terms of when he's going to come up. When will the Messiah show up? This thing got blown out. Lots of people had lots of opinions about these things. Remember, there's two extremes, either rampant wickedness or rampant godliness. Either one of those is going to make the Messiah come back. But here's what they thought. He will come back if all Israel repents in a single day. If the entire nation would just repent in one day, he would come back. If they properly kept a single Sabbath, if every Israelite living at that time would keep a single Sabbath according to the law of Moses, then he'd return. Another version of this is if they would observe two Sabbaths consecutively or in a row, he would come back. Another way they looked at it is the Messiah would come in a generation that is marked by either total innocence or total wickedness. That goes back to those earlier two. Either everybody's living rightly or everybody's living wrongly. Those two extremes were in their minds. Uh, he would come back in a generation that had lost all hope. And I really do think that was kind of the generation Jesus showed up to talk to, to minister to. They had lost all hope. Or this one's really interesting. He would come to a generation that is marked by children who disrespect their parents and their elders. So think about this. How did they get all these different versions? Well, the longer you wait and the longer you have time to think about it, you start coming up with what you think is the proper timing, the proper sequence of events that's going to bring about what you want to see happen. And so that's what we see happening here as they begin to wrestle with, when's the Messiah going to come? And why is he waiting? Now, this next point is going to be probably a surprise to most of you because it was really a surprise to me. My concept of the Israelites is that they had been living in wickedness for many, many, many generations. Uh, you go back and study the Old Testament, you read the prophets, and you realize that the people of Israel had constantly turned their backs on God. 
They had constantly worshipped idols. They had constantly failed to do what they had been called to do. And we talked about this last week. But in the day that Jesus came, they believed they deserved to be saved. That just kind of blows my mind that anybody would remotely think that who was a Jew living in the first century. But they did. Now why? Because the first century Jews saw themselves as faithful. And you have to think about that. Why would they have that conception of themselves? Well, they worshiped Yahweh. What's interesting is that there are no idols in Jerusalem or anywhere in Israel like they are used to be during the period of the kings. They're not worshiping false gods. They're worshiping Yahweh and they're observing all the feasts and all the festivals that have been prescribed by God for them to keep. They're doing it. And they're also obediently doing all the offerings that are associated with the sacrificial system. They're, they're going to the temple. They're, they're having Passover, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're doing all of these things, and they're fasting, they're praying, and they're offering alms. So from their perspective, we're doing all the right things, so why hasn't He come back? We're living righteously, not sinlessly, but righteously doing the laws of God, the commands of God, so why is He not here? But see, there's a different perspective. And, and we kind of know what the perspective is because, again, we're living on the other side of the cross. Jesus came, and He had a completely different viewpoint of these people. How do I know that? Listen to what He says in Matthew chapter 15. Why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, It's all right for people to say to their parents, Sorry, I can't help you. For I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. Now, this is a thing called Corban. It was a man-made law that allowed people to disregard their needy parents as they went up in age. There was no welfare system. There was no social security. So as their parents grew in age and became more and more dependent, you could tell your parent, I can't help you financially because I've promised that money to God. Now, here's the problem with Corbin. Is it was a loophole, and it was built to be a loophole because basically you said, I'm I've promised this money to God, but you were never obligated to actually ever give that money to God. It was to keep you from having to give it to your parents. Listen to what it says. In this way, you say they don't need to honor their parents, and so you cancel the Word of God for the sake of your own tradition, your own rule. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. For they teach man-made ideas as commands of God. See, Jesus looked at the people of Israel living in the first century, and He didn't see a righteous people. He saw a people who were wicked, who were hypocrites. And He says their worship of God is a farce. He, he gets this directly from the book of Isaiah. So what do we do with this? Well, Jesus is going to build on this. As a matter of fact, if you go to the Sermon on the Mount, particularly chapter 6, he has some things that he has to say against the people of Israel. He basically labels them as hypocrites. And he's not just talking about the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He's basically saying, you're all hypocrites. You don't live the way you're supposed to live. It's a facade. It's fake. It's a farce. 
Then he says, you're characterized by materialism. You love worldly things. You love the things of this world that bring you pleasure and happiness. And their lives, he went on to say, are marked by these things, anger, lust, unrighteousness, dishonesty, greed, and pride. Go back and read chapter 6 of Matthew. This is what he says of the people who are sitting on that mountainside listening to him preach. This is the way he characterizes them. And then he adds on that you're unloving and you lack compassion. So they may think they deserve for the Messiah to come and set up his kingdom, but they don't. They don't deserve it at all because as he describes them, they're hypocrites. That, that Greek word is, it has to do with play, players in, a, in a, a play, actors in a play. They're, they're playing a part. They're acting one way, trying to fool the audience that they're something other than they are. And that's exactly what he calls the people of Israel. And they're inflicted with spiritual blindness. See, we know from John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, that in Him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. The people, as we said last week, are living in a time of darkness and despair, and they don't realize that their problem is an internal one, not an external one. It's not about the Romans. It's not about taxation. It's not about poverty. It's about spiritual poverty, but they don't recognize it. John goes on and says, the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, Jesus has come to be the light to the world, not only to his own people, but to the entire world. But the world did not recognize him. His own people did not accept him. Why? Because they had misplaced priorities. And I want you to hear that because we can suffer from the same thing. See, these people... When they thought about the Messiah and when they thought about the kingdom of God that was to come, they desired emancipation, not redemption. They didn't think they needed redemption. They didn't think they were wicked. They thought they were righteous. And so they wanted emancipation from what? From Rome. That was really what drove them. They wanted freedom from Rome, not from sin. That was one of the biggest hurdles Jesus had to get over with the people is to recognize your sin especially with the religious elite. They refuse to admit that maybe I have a sin problem. Everybody thought the problem in the world at that time was societal in nature. And so their king, their Messiah was going to come and right all wrongs and bring about societal change. That's what they were looking for, not a savior. They wanted a savior only in the sense that it would be somebody to save them from Rome, but the way he would do it was to bring about radical societal change, turn the tables, reverse the tide. He would bring down Rome and elevate Israel. He would take away all oppression and he would bring justice in the form of the destruction of the Roman Empire. Because at the end of the day, what they really wanted was revenge against their enemies, not repentance. They did not want to repent because they didn't believe they needed to. What they wanted was this king to show up and fix all the problems in the world. Sound familiar? Sound like today? With so many people out there, so many groups, so many isms and ideologies all offering a, a way to fix what ails mankind. But they're doing it without God and without a Savior. Salvation without a Savior. 
And that's really what the Jews were looking for. See, they wanted justice, not justification. Justification means to be made right with God because you are not right with God. But if, you, if you're going into this thinking that we're a pretty good people and we're keeping all the rules and the Messiah ought to show up and take care of this, what they really want is justice, but they don't see the need for justification. This is so important for us to understand as we move into what this has to do with us because, because of those misconceptions, they missed an opportunity. See, it says that Jesus gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. You see the internal aspect of this? That's what Jesus came to do, and that's what the kingdom is all about. It's about transformed people. It's about transformed lives, new hearts, new creations. It's not about transforming the culture. That's a byproduct. It's about transforming lives that will help bring about changes in the culture. But what does it say in John 1.11? His own people did not receive him. This one who came to give his life freely so that they might be free from every kind of sin, so that they might be cleansed inside, so that they might be a people devoted to God, they rejected him. They turned their backs on him and they missed an opportunity. See, they misunderstood the king and the kingdom. And again, we can do the same thing today. There are countless evangelical Christians all over this planet who are missing the whole idea of what the king and the kingdom is all about. And it's affecting their view of the world. It's affecting their view of the end times. It's affecting the way they live their lives right here and right now. See, the Jews sought a human solution to a spiritual problem. And sadly, so many Christians seek the same thing. They're looking for a human solution to what is essentially a spiritual problem. And they may give lip service to the fact that, well, yes, I know it has to be Jesus. It has to be done through God. But we've got our work to do in terms of we got to fix this stuff. And in no way am I suggesting that we should not be involved in the culture, that we should not try to bring about change where we can make change. But at the end of the day, it's not about societal redemption or reformation. It's about changed hearts and lives within sinful people. See, they're looking for heaven on earth. That's really what the Jews wanted. They wanted the king to come, the Messiah to come, and really bring the kingdom of God to earth, and it would last forever. See, this has been going on for centuries. We're talking about the first century, and here we are in the 21st century, and it's still going on. People longing for God to bring heaven to earth fix these problems. Let's, let's eradicate all the evil. Let's get rid of all the people who disagree with us and let's make our kingdom come right now. Listen to this from Sigurd Grenheim. He says, the kings of Israel had enjoyed the best preconditions for success. They ruled a nation that had been chosen by God. The nation's constitution had been written by God himself. Their laws were perfect since they were of divine origin. God had promised to be with them and protect them and protect these kings, yet the kings still turned out to be failures. Don't miss this. A just society was beyond their reach, as it has been for every political leader who has tried to institute it. What's he saying? If you go back and you study the kings of Israel, both in Israel in the north and Judah in the south, they all 
ruled a nation that had been given to them by God. They ruled over a people who belonged to God, who were the chosen people of God. He had, they had the laws of God. They had everything going for them, and they still couldn't pull it off. They still failed. He goes on and says this, It was not enough for political leaders to have God's backing. It was not enough for them to have His help. To establish God's rule was not something humans could do no matter what God did to empower them. This is why the political process will never be ultimately successful. King David was not a success. Even though he built the kingdom to its largest size that it would ever be, in the grand scheme of things, he did not change the world. He did not redeem culture. He goes on and says, humans are not capable of accomplishing the goal of a just society no matter what tools they're given or have at their disposal. Humans cannot usher in utopia. Don't miss that. Humans cannot, will not, ever usher in utopia. They cannot establish a genuinely good rule, the rule of God. They cannot bring salvation to the earth. Yet here we are, 21st century America, at the, near the end of 2021, and we still think we can. We still think that there's a way that we can pull this off. But did Jesus come to change the state of affairs in Israel? Did he come to get rid of Rome? Did he come to get rid of slavery? Did he come to get rid of overtaxation? Did he come to fix any of those cultural problems? No. It's not why he came. He did not come to usher in a just society at that time. Because here we are, centuries later, and we still don't live in a just society. And we will never live in a just society until He chooses to return and set up one on earth. And so it's important for us to understand that. Was His mission to bring heaven to earth? No, because He didn't. If that was His mission, then He was a failure. And I don't think Jesus was a failure. So... We have to wrestle with this when we think about all the things going on around us. Is all of this what the kingdom is about? It is peace on earth? Is everyone getting along? And is, are all the social ills that we see taking place around us, do they, those have to be fixed for Jesus Christ to truly rule and reign? Are they the key? Or is it something else? See, Seeger goes on and says, when Jesus came as the Messiah and the Son of God, He didn't come as a human leader who would institute a superior political system that would bring a just society. He didn't teach a new ideology that would finally solve our social ills. He did something altogether different. You, you have to hear what this guy is saying because I think he's so accurate in his assessment of not only first century Israel, but 21st century Western America in particular. He didn't come to do any of these things. He came to do something completely different. And I know some of you are going, yeah, yeah, but what about the Sermon on the Mount? What about all those things he taught from Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, where he seems to give a new way of living? But did he? Did Jesus really give a new way of living your life? In other words, a new standard, a new and improved version of the law. I know in, 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 
chapter 6 in particular, he says, you have heard it said, and then he would quote some aspect of the law, and then he would say, but I say, and then he kind of adds on to it. It seems like he's just taking the law and improving it, expanding it, making it bigger, more effective, but it's still all about behavior. So doesn't Matthew 5 through 7 contain some key to how we change the world through our efforts, through our actions, through our speech, through our conduct? To a certain degree, yes. But let's look closely at what he says, at least in chapter 5, where we have the beginning verses talking about the Beatitudes. Those, those verses we're very familiar with. Listen to what he says. It says, Seeing the crowd, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, before we move on, I want you to stop, and I want you to take a seat on the, the mountainside where Jesus is preaching. And I want you, as best as you can, get into a first century Jew's mind as he hears these words for the very first time. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a juxtaposition there that is very uncomfortable if you're a first century Jew. Poor in spirit, kingdom of heaven. Doesn't seem to fit. Well, he goes on, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And then he kind of bookends it with this statement. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see how he's, he's bookended this beatitude section with theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But what's in between is really disconcerting for the people that are hearing it because that word blessed is one that they understood, and sometimes I don't think we do. It's in the Greek makarios, and it means to be fortunate, to be well off, literally to be happy. Happy are you if you're poor in spirit. That doesn't make any sense today. It didn't make any sense then. Blessed are you if you're persecuted. This is what he's saying, and it's a disconnect. See, they wanted to be blessed. It's the dream they had of when the Messiah come, they would be well off, they would be fortunate, and they would be happy. It's what they wanted. They just didn't understand how it fit with what he was saying. They hoped the Messiah would bring happiness. They hoped the Messiah would make them more fortunate. But what Jesus is saying is something radically different than what they're expecting. He says, the inheritance belongs to these people. The inheritance being the kingdom belongs to these people, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those deprived of righteousness, the pure in heart, and the peacemakers. Oh, and then he goes on and he says, and those who are persecuted for righteousness. None of that is appealing. It's not appealing now. It wasn't appealing then. And yet that's what Jesus is saying is the key to the kingdom because those people will inherit the kingdom, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I look at that and I go, are you, are you nuts? Are you kidding me? Is this, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? None of this makes sense to the Jews. And really, to a certain degree, it doesn't make any sense to us, even though we're on this side of the cross. It's counterintuitive, counterintuitive and it's countercultural. It does not fit their paradigm of either the king or his kingdom. And it's highly unappealing. 
and unconvincing, unmotivating, unattractive. You take any unword you want to put in there. They did not resonate with this because it doesn't sound like what they were expecting. See, it describes the less fortunate more than it describes the fortunate. And yet it says blessed, fortunate, well-off, happy. But those things in between are pretty negative if you come at it from a Jewish mindset. It's basically painting a reversal of fortunes that they don't quite understand. See, to the Jews, poverty was a curse from God. You were poor because you had offended God somehow. You had sinned or your parents had sinned. And so therefore now you're poor because God deemed it so. Mourning was a result of suffering from sin. You mourned because you were either poor, you were um, needed healing, but all of those things were because of ultimately sin. Mourning was the result of sin. Meekness was a sign of weakness, not strength. A lack of righteousness brought death. If you did not live righteously, if you didn't keep God's, God's commands, you would be put to death and you would suffer eternal separation from God. Mercy was the privilege of the powerful. Only if you had power could you extend mercy. It's really hard for somebody who has no power and who's living in poverty to extend mercy to anybody. And then purity of heart was just basically totally impossible. Nobody could be totally pure of heart. In this life, it's impossible. And then peacemaking was a sign of compromise. Nobody wanted to make peace with anybody. Nobody most certainly wanted to make peace with the Israelites. I mean, with the Romans. They wanted them defeated. So all of these things. And finally, persecution was to be avoided at all costs. They were already persecuted as far as they were concerned, living under Roman oppression. And now Jesus is saying, no, there's, there's something new. There's something different, a different kind of righteousness. It's not what you expect. Why? Because he's a different kind of king and he's brought a very different kind of kingdom to bear. And he's demanding that they have a different kind of righteousness. And right in front of them, he's modeling a different brand of blessedness. See, he's blessed by God. He is fortunate. He is well off. He is happy because he is the son of God doing the will of God. And ultimately he will suffer under the will of God by going to the cross. It's a different brand of blessedness that he comes to bring. See, all along the way, Jesus has preached repentance. We've looked at this multiple times. He starts his ministry by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Later on, he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We know that those verses and we understand, we think what he means. But it's important that we understand that word repent, metaneo. We tend to think of it having to do with a change of behavior. You may have heard it described as you're going one direction and then you do a, a 180 and you go the other direction. You're headed this way and you say, no, 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 I'm going to go this way. Here's what it really means to change one's mind. Behavior will come along, but, but you'll never change your behavior until you change your mind. But here's what he's really talking about. Change your mind about what? Everything. Repent. Repent. Change your mind about what you think to be reality, the nature of God. What kind of God do you worship? Is he a holy, just, righteous, merciful, loving God, or is he a angry judge in the sky who's going to rain down his wrath on you if you do one thing wrong. What's your perspective of God? Change your mind about the nature of sin. 
and, and what it results in. See, many of the people he ministered to didn't understand the nature of sin. They didn't understand that they needed a savior and they needed to understand and change their mind about how you became righteous. To them, it was all through human effort. And he's come to basically erase that and say, no, it comes through faith. They're going to have to change their mind about the role of the Messiah. He was not going to do what they wanted him to do. He would not act like they expected him to act. They're going to have to change their mind. And they're going to have to change their mind about the character of the kingdom. It would not be what they expected. And there was no group that had a greater problem with this than the 12 disciples. As they were forced to repent, change their mind about their understanding of reality as they knew it. What they expected, what they wanted, what they desired, about everything. You've got to change your mind, Jesus says. Change your mind. In verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5 is really the key to understanding the entire Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he says. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Just think about what that was like to those Jews sitting on that hillside as they hear Jesus say this. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless what? You're better than the Pharisees. See, that was a, just a, a mind-blowing statement to hear Jesus speak because they thought they were the cream of the crop. They were the religious elite. They were the superstars of their day, spiritually speaking. And Jesus is not complimenting these men. He's not saying, man, they've got a great righteousness. You're just going to have to have a little bit better one. No, we know what he thought about them. He thought of them as hypocrites. Here's what he said about them in Matthew chapter 23. Practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. See, these men were great about teaching the law, proclaiming the law, declaring what God expected, but they just didn't live up to it themselves. They were hypocrites. So he's not telling them to be better than the Pharisees. He's not talking about quantity. He's talking about quality, a different kind of righteousness. He's demanding not more righteousness. That's not what this word exceed means. He's talking about something radically different, a radically different superior kind of righteousness that's something other than the Pharisees can deliver. That word exceeds meant and it means to be preeminent, to excel, to be the best, to be better than anything else around you. So it's something radically different. He's not raising the standard. He's basically replacing it with something new that they couldn't live up to because man's righteousness is insufficient. And that's one of the things they're going to have to repent of, that I can somehow make myself righteous through doing good things. Because Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are as polluted garments. They're like filthy rags, another translation puts it. You'll never get there. You'll never pull it off. Your righteous deeds are never going to get you where you need to go, into the kingdom. See, Paul said this, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. See, this is why Jesus came. This is what the kingdom's all about. He wrote to the Romans and said, this righteousness from God, in other words, it's an alien righteousness that doesn't come from inside us out. It comes from the outside into us. It's imputed to us by Christ. 
He says, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right with God freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the message of the kingdom. The king has come. The king has come to restore and redeem. Not culture, not a kingdom of Israelites. He's come to fix the sin problem that plagues the world. That's what he came to do. It's a different kind of kingdom. And entry into that kingdom is going to be different as well. The way you enter the kingdom would not be the way they had been taught. And life in the kingdom was going to be radically different as well. That's what the Beatitudes are teaching. He's not telling them, here's the way to live to get into my kingdom. He's saying, once you're in my kingdom, you will now have the ability to live differently. And this is what it will look like through the power of the Holy Spirit. But see, the Jews had a hard time buying into this. The disciples had a hard time buying into this because they had their own ideas, their own preconceived notions of what the kingdom was be, would be like. And guess what? We do too. We have this idea that we think we know what the kingdom should look like, will look like in our day. We have these biased perceptions. The Jews had lots of opinions about these things, but so do we. And we bring them to the table and they're mostly based on how we were raised, what church we grew up in, what denomination, what we've read, what we've been taught, what we've seen on YouTube or some other social media. We are, are permeated with information that has basically created our concept of the kingdom of God. We filter everything through our worldview, what we believe about reality. And we can easily take the kingdom of God and turn it into a kingdom for and about men. And that's a dangerous thing for us to do because that's not what Jesus came to do. So we end up cramming this incredible concept of the kingdom to fit our preferred agenda. What do I want God to do through His Son in my day? And again, this is a very dangerous thing. And so what we end up with is this list. This is Eight different views of the kingdom. I've stolen this from Howard A. Snyder in his book, Models of the Kingdom. And I've actually created a handout for you that looks a little bit like this. Type's kind of small. But it will expand on these eight concepts of the kingdom. But I'm just going to blow through them. And I want you to just think about where have I seen this in our day? The first one is the eschatological hope, which is the future kingdom. It's all about heaven in the sweet by and by. You know, we're all going to get to go spend eternity in heaven. And we make it all about the future. The second one is a personal spiritual experience. It's an interior kingdom. It's all about the soul. It's all about the heart. It's me and Jesus and my walk with Him. And it becomes very myopic and personal. And we forget about everything else going on around us. The third is the mystical communion, the heavenly kingdom. And that's not talking about a place out there in the ether. It's that we live as this communion of saints and we form heaven right here, right now. The fourth is similar to it. it. It's basically the institutional church. In other words, the church becomes the kingdom. It's the ecclesiastical kingdom. It's really what the Roman Catholic Church promoted early on and to a certain degree still promotes this idea that they are the church. They are the kingdom on earth. 
The next one is the counter system, the subversive kingdom, where we are these kind of revolutionaries underneath the surface who are not only opposed to the wickedness all around us, but we actually stand opposed to even the organized institutional church. And we're here to rock the world through our efforts. The next one is the political state, the theocratic kingdom, where we basically try to force the will, our will, upon everyone around us, that you're going to live like we live. You're going to live according to our standards, and we're going to put the Ten Commandments back up on the walls, and we're going to make everybody abide by our way of seeing things, and it's the theocratic kingdom. The next is the Christianized culture. This is based on the idea of that we are the transforming kingdom, that we're here to transform the world through our lives, and the more that we can Christianize the culture, save more people, will basically bring heaven to earth. And that leads us to heaven on earth. The utopian kingdom. And I've seen this one pop up its ugly head more in the last year and a half than I've ever seen it before in my lifetime. That there's a, a lot of Christians today who really do believe that we are going to bring heaven to earth. We're going we're to create a utopia. We're going to fix all the ills of mankind. But remember what Sirgad said in his quote, that it's never happened before. It didn't happen through David. It didn't happen through Sol Solomon. Even though they had God on their side and they had the law of God, and they had everything going for them, they could not pull this off. What makes us think that we will and can or should? Is that why we're here? See, there's truth in all of these aspects of the truth. But if we're not careful, we run into the high weeds so quickly. So we have to ask these questions. Is the kingdom future or present? And the answer is yes. It's both. Is it individual or communal? Is it about me or is it about us? And the answer is yes. Is it spiritual or physical? Once again, the answer is yes. It's both. Is it gradual or climactic? Well, we do know that it's gradual. The kingdom is coming about gradually because guess what? We're 2,000 plus years past the death of Christ. And we still haven't seen the culmination of things to come. So it's a gradual thing that's happening as more and more people come to faith in Christ, but it will have a climactic end. And this last one is very important. Is it up to God or man? Is the kingdom's coming up to you or up to him? There's a lot of Christians today who really think unless we do what we're called to do, if we don't hurry up and redeem this culture and fix this culture, Jesus isn't coming back. I know of nowhere in the scriptures, Old Testament to New Testament, where anything is dependent upon us for God to do something. In other words, we have to do A before he'll do B. Nowhere. It's not up to us. And it's not about the church. The church is huge. The church is important. It's, it's the institution ordained by God. But the church is not the kingdom, guys. We're members, citizens of the kingdom, but it is not the kingdom. There's more to come. And one day there will be no more church. There will be no need for the church. So it has to be something else. See, there's a, myst a mystery about the kingdom that we can't answer. We can't fully flesh it out. But we do know this, that God is not done yet. And if you go over to Acts, you see all these passages where the apostles are teaching post-Pentecost. Listen to what they say. 
In other words, Jesus Christ has died. He's risen up into heaven. He's sent the Holy Spirit. The church has begun. And if you go back and you read what these guys were teaching and preaching, it sounds familiar. But now the people in Samaria believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. He's still preaching the kingdom of God. The same as Jesus. Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia. In other words, they're in foreign lands now. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Well, wait, weren't they supposed to set up the kingdom? Weren't they supposed to right all wrongs? Weren't they supposed to get rid of all persecution? Weren't we all supposed to be blessed, fortunate, well-off, happy? No, we must go through many sufferings and hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul went to the synagogue in Ephesus and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about what? The kingdom of God. Then he goes to Miletus, to whom I have preached the kingdom. And he says, you will never see me again. I declare today that I've been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, in other words, people are going to die. It's not my fault, for I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. Paul's admitting that even though he proclaimed the kingdom, there will be people who refuse to accept it and die and spend eternity in hell. And then it goes on in chapter 28. On that day, a large number of people came to Paul's lodging. He explained and testified about the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them about Jesus from the scriptures. See, here's Paul still preaching the kingdom of God. And later on in that same chapter, the last chapter in the book of Acts, it says, for two years he lived in Rome under house arrest, facing a trial and ultimately death, and he welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Boldly proclaiming. So what do we do with this? What are the implications of all of this? If we go back and look at the early church and what they taught and what they proclaimed, at no point do you hear Paul or the apostles talking about the kingdom of the church. It's all about the church. That's not the kingdom. They don't preach the kingdom of this world. In other words, we got to get this thing fixed, guys. We got to fix all the people and we got to fix all the institutions. They don't fix, they don't preach the kingdom of culture. The culture screwed up, and if we could just fix the culture, the kingdom would be here. They don't preach the kingdom of the apostles. It's not about them. Hey guys, just do what we do. Listen to what we say. We've got the answer to all your problems. It's not the kingdom of revolution. They're not stirring up a revolutionary guard to go out and change the world. They're preaching the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the righteousness of Christ. And they're most certainly not preaching a kingdom of societal reform. Societal reform does take place, but it comes through changed lives. And again, it's not the kingdom of political activism because all these things ultimately become the kingdoms of men. We make it all about us. We make it all about us playing God. Because even as Christians, we can end up playing God, trying to establish heaven on earth. And that's not what he called us to do. Trying to create an Eden of our own design. Let's make this world a happy place where we can all live contentedly. That's not the calling. We believe we can fix culture through social reform. Is social reform necessary, needed in this world? Certainly but it's not our primary role. And we can spend all our time expecting sinners to submit to our moral standards. And I know you do it because I do it. Why can't people live the right way? 
Why can't lost people live like I live? Well, in certain ways, it's probably best that they don't live like I live sometimes. But they can't live righteously because they're unrighteous and they're blind and they can't see the truth. And we can spend all our time assuming that redemption is our responsibility, but it's not. So what is? Listen to this. God has given us this task. Here it is of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That's the message of the kingdom. The king has come. The kingdom is here. And entrance into that kingdom is only one way through righteousness. And that righteousness only comes through faith in Christ. So next week, we're going to look at the final kingdom. We're going to fast forward and look at the book of Revelation when it finally consummates and Jesus Christ sets up his earthly throne. But for right now, I want you to think about and to discuss these questions. Why do we gravitate towards social and cultural reform over our divine mandate of reconciling lost men to God? See, social reform is easy. Reconciling lost men to God isn't because it's a work of God. All I can do is share, but I can't make anybody change. Only God can do that. Of the eight views of the kingdom that we looked at, which ones do you see as prevalent today and why could they be a problem? How have we gotten off the rails with some of these? And then finally, in what ways do we end up making the kingdom of God all about us and lose sight of its primary objective? Well, Father, I thank you for these men. I thank you for their willingness to watch these videos and to think about these thoughts and to discuss these questions with their wife, with a friend. Father, I pray that you would help us to apply this information to our lives, that we would not put our view of the kingdom over your will for the kingdom, that we would not take our preconceived ideas and our biases and try to force the kingdom into becoming something you never intended for it to become. May we be about the task that you've given us, reconciling men to you. And I pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We'll see you guys next week.